We are beginning Matthew chapter 21 today, making our way through. And so I want to read verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would bless the reading of your Word, that you would bless the hearing, and that you would bless the, the digestion of it now as we open it up and as we study it and we see what we might learn about our Lord and what we might learn about ourselves. Oh Lord, show us how much we need Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, we're now entering, as we walk through Matthew's gospel, we've entered into the final week of his earthly ministry in general. And specifically, today we're looking at what has come to be called the triumphal entry. That is, the entry of our Lord into the city of Jerusalem with all of the pomp and all of the celebration and all of the reverence and worship that he deserved, and yet he's entering in order to simply press on further to his eventual death and resurrection. Uh, again, within the week, from this point, again, we have several chapters to go in the gospel, but in a, in a chronological timeline, within the week, Jesus will have been crucified and will have been raised again. And so by way of exposition, what I want to do is open up this passage under two headings. First, we will look at the Christ. That's main heading number one. And secondly, we will look at the crowd. That's main heading number two. We'll look at the Christ, and then we'll look at the crowd. Now underneath each of those main headings, I've also put two subheadings. So ultimately, there will be four points in all. As we look at the crowd, or at the Christ, and as we look at the crowd, I want us to first take note of their actions. Just watch what they're doing and observe what's happening. Then, from those actions, we will try to discern or pull out 
some of the attributes of each. In other words, what are they doing? And then what does this tell us about them that they're doing these things? And so, again, if you want a, an outline in your mind, main heading number one, look at the Christ, and then beneath that, His actions and His attributes. And then main heading number two, look at the crowds, their actions and their attributes. So first, as we walk through this, these verses, let's look at the Christ. If we will take a look at the Christ in this scene, and we'll, we'll take the time and slow down and pay attention, what we will see is the all-knowing, sovereign King of Zion entering into the final week of His earthly ministry in direct fulfillment of the eternal decree of God that had been made known through prophecy. Now, how did I get that? Well, let's look at His actions first. Beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. And the first action we see, or we can observe is that Jesus has continued His way to Jerusalem. We see they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. If you see some of the other uh, gospel writers will include Bethany in this, these two cities that were very close, or we, we could say suburbs, very small towns, very close to the city of Jerusalem. Now He's already, and he's already told them three times he must go to Jerusalem, and we've watched at every point, we've watched as He's made His way geographically to the city, and we know that He knows what's going to happen when He gets there. And so we see Him now within a couple of miles from the city of Jerusalem. He has stopped again at Bethany and Bethphage, and um, I think if you pay attention, in the middle of verse... One, there's a big gap. And some of the other gospel writers include some of the events like when Jesus had His feet washed and things like that in these cities. He's not stopped in these towns because He's afraid. He's not stopped in these towns because He's tired. He's stopped in order to make preparations for the last leg of this journey. So He's continuing on to Jerusalem. The second action we see is that He sends His disciples on an errand, sent two of His disciples, saying to them. Now, what do we learn from that? What can we see happening? We tend to think of Jesus as in this, this constant mob of people that just drive Him everywhere He goes. And He's sort of forced into Jerusalem and forced to the cross, but that's not what's happened. As we, as we see Him here, He is rather than being driven about by the demands and dictates of the surrounding crowd, he's in complete control of every detail. He's at the helm. He is steering the ship and making sure that every aspect of this triumphal entry is according to his plan. And so he, he sends his disciples in to this city. The third thing we observe him doing is describing future events perfectly. Now that seems pretty simple, but none of us can do it. Jesus had not gone ahead of this crowd. 
He had not prearranged something, had not sent a messenger. As we've seen throughout uh, the gospel narrative, he is describing events which only God himself could describe. Now, from a human perspective, we would say he's looking into the future and explaining to his disciples what will happen. Of course, we know from a, a divine perspective, he's simply describing events that he decreed from all eternity. And it's interesting if you pay attention to the details. Go into the village in front of you and immediately not look for, or, or maybe you'll come across, but immediately you will find a donkey tied. Not a donkey wandering, not a donkey in a fence, not a donkey in, in uh, uh, pulling a cart. You will immediately, right when you walk in the city, you will find a donkey tied there. Not a horse, not a cow, not a bull, a donkey. And a colt with her. Not a male donkey, a female donkey. Not a female donkey alone, but a female donkey with her colt. They're together. All of these events he lays out before them, and so he's describing future events perfectly. Look at verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So we see here that Jesus is acting in accord with prophecy. We read these words from Matthew as he, as he narrates this. This took place. So as he tells his disciples, go into the city, that took place in order to fulfill the prophecy. In other words, Jesus is orchestrating these events so that he might personally fulfill what had been written by the prophet Zechariah over 500 years before. He knew what was in the scriptures concerning himself and he sought to act in every way to fulfill what had been written about himself. And so he acts in accord with prophecy. And then the fifth thing we can see is he displays his royal station. He displays his royal station. Now how did I get that? Well, this idea of riding into the city on a donkey was historically a practice reserved for royalty. Listen to this from... Judges chapter 5 and verse 10. Here, Deborah is singing, and she's singing about the kings and the princes of her day. And she says, Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. You see, they're describing the kings and the princes. They would ride on white donkeys. It was a common practice. We also read this from 1 Kings Chapter 1, verses 33 and 34. Here King David is talking. The king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Here Solomon's riding in on a mule. And as most of us are well aware, a mule is not a donkey. But a mule was still a beast of burden. And so here we see this typical, typical introduction of royalty in the day of Solomon and the day of David. He would ride in as they would sort of, on a, a sort of a coronation we would say, and he would ride in on this mule, this beast of burden. 
So what was prophesied by Zechariah was that Israel's Messiah would come into Jerusalem, into Zion, in the ancient manner of the kings and the royalty of Israel. Now by this time, by Jesus' time, this was not a common practice. Uh, they had horses and they become much more prominent. And so coming in on a donkey, which again by this time, much more suited for the poor, was a very pointed statement, look at me, I'm doing something special. I'm fulfilling this ancient prophecy. And so he continues to head to Jerusalem. He sends his disciples on this errand. He, he describes future events perfectly. He acts in accord with ancient prophecy. And he displays his royal station. Now let's look at his attributes. From this first half of the, the passage, focusing in on our Lord, what kind of attributes can we see displayed in all this? Well, I think first, if we pay attention, we can see his royal ambition, or I should say redemptive ambition, not royal, redemptive ambition. He will get to Jerusalem. Again, he's prophesied it three times already. He's told them. He's headed there. He's determined to accomplish this mission. As we read before, he has set his face like a flint. And in the midst of all of these interactions that we've studied and all of the crowds and all of the individuals, Christ has never taken His eyes off of the supreme goal. In other words, we can say the joy of the redemption of His people has been set before Him and He has resolved to endure the cross for their sake. And so He is dead set with this redemptive ambition to get to Jerusalem. The second thing that I think we can... See, the second attribute we might could glean from this, these actions is we see His divine authority, especially over His disciples. He speaks, they obey. This, this quote, the Lord needs them, is enough and will be enough for whoever inquires about these donkeys when their owners come and ask. The Lord needs them and that they stop, they take it. And so as it's been from the beginning of His ministry... Christ continues to do exactly as He pleases according to the plan of His Father and He retains divine authority to command His followers as He wishes to carry out every point of His mission. So we see His divine authority. The third thing we see is His omniscience. He knows future events. He knows exactly where this donkey will be tied and where her colt will be. He knows that this colt will be with its mother. He knows, and Matthew doesn't include this information, but Mark and Luke tell us that he knows this colt will have never been ridden on. I dare some of you sometime this week to go find a young donkey that's never been ridden on and, and try to sit on it and see how that goes for you. He knows that the owners will inquire of it. And so... As we read the Gospels in, in His incarnation, there were legitimate times when He could say, not even the Son of Man knows. But at the same time, He remains very God of very God and He knows all things because He is, again, the Word by whom all of these events were decreed. And so we see His omniscience. The fourth thing we see is, again, is his, his personal fulfillment of prophecy or, or that he fulfills prophecy in his person. He knew Zechariah's prophecy. 
and he sought to fulfill it. Again, he's not tired of walking. He's walked his whole ministry. He's not tired. He has made these plans so that he might clearly identify himself with the words of the prophet. And as is often the case in Matthew's gospel, Matthew wants his audience to see Jesus of Nazareth filled, fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Covenant prophets spoken centuries before. No matter the opposition, Christ will fulfill prophecies. And so he's working to make it painfully obvious that he is their Messiah. Now, just as an aside, if you, begin, if you pay attention to Matthew's gospel, early on, Matthew very many times says, as it was written, as it has been written, as it has been written. And then that sort of fades out. And you don't read very much of that anymore. Well, at this point, chapter 21, moving all the way through to the, the crucifixion, there are a lot, there's a plethora of places where Matthew again begins to say, this is what was spoken by the prophet. This is what was spoken by the prophet. It's also interesting if we pay attention that at this point in Matthew's gospel, almost all that we see up until the crucifixion is opposition. Matthew wants us to see that although Jesus came into the city like this, that he was not ultimately welcomed as their king. And we'll get back to that later. So we see him fulfilling prophecy. And the fifth thing that we can see, this fifth attribute we might pull out of this, is his regal solemnity. Regal solemnity. He rides in like the ancient kings. We should see him as a king riding into his city slowly on a beast of burden. Now we can think of our modern day parades. And you've got this political figure who's going down Main Street. Now maybe he does drive a Corvette or a Lamborghini. But he's not going to blaze down Main Street in that car at full speed. He's going to have somebody else drive him and he's going to creep down very slow. It wouldn't do him any good to, to be sitting in the darkened cab of a military vehicle or a limousine because everybody can't see him. When we, like, when we watch parades, we like to see convertibles and we like to see a, a truck pulling a, a trailer creeping by so that everybody on both sides gets a, a really good, long, detailed look at whatever this, this, or whoever this figure is, this person in focus. That's what's happening. He's getting on this beast of burden, not to gallop into town, but he, he rides slowly in with the crowd so that everyone can see him. He doesn't just continue as one of the crowd, but he mounts this unbroken foal of a donkey and creeps his way into the city. And so we see his regal solemnity. So there's the Christ. We can see what he's doing, and we can glean some of his attributes from that. Second main heading. Let's look at the crowd. Beginning in verse 6. Now while we can almost imagine that our Lord's demeanor while He was led into the city was one of sobriety and, and great gravity, great weightiness. Um, I can't imagine Him doing the, the, the parade wave. and I, I imagine that he's, very, that he's very sober at this moment because He realizes what's happening. And as we'll see, He realizes all of this show is nothing. But all, in, in the midst of that, there, there, there surrounds Him a crowd that is taken up in celebration. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. 
That is, and if we look at the other gospels, he sat specifically on the colt. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And in the midst of this zealous, praise-filled mob joyfully welcoming their city into the king, we, we can learn and see the, the flighty and unstable, easily swept up nature of man. Now, how did I get that? Again, well, let's look at their actions. First, we see obedience on the point of the disciples, or on the part of the disciples. They do exactly as he asks them. Again, if we read the other Gospels along with this, we see every detail that he laid out for them, that is how it happened, and they responded just as he told them to, brought the, the cult to him. We see obedience. We also, in what seems to be sort of the the centerpiece of this whole celebration, we see their selfless service to Him. Now pay close attention to all of these. Obedience. Selfless service. We see this scene of them throwing their cloaks down and cutting down the palm branches. The, the modern idea that comes to my mind that we think of the, the chivalrous man who takes his coat off and lays it across the puddle in the road so that the, the woman doesn't have to get her... Uh, feet dirty, to soil her, her delicate shoes. That's sort of what's happening here. Uh, there was a very similar action that took place in 2 Kings chapter 9 when Jehu was anointed king of Israel. By this action, taking off the cloaks, laying them in the street, cutting on the palm branches, laying them in the street, what they're doing is they're proclaiming symbolically this man, first, he is too good. He is greater than to come into immediate contact with this cult. So let's lay some cloaks over the cult. But also, because he's sitting on this donkey, that donkey is now of greater worth than to touch this dirt. Let's cover the ground for him. They were saying, in essence, we would rather our clothes be trampled than for him to touch the dirt. Very much like a red carpet event in our day. It, it doesn't really do anything, but it's just a symbol. It shows something. Um, in a wedding, the flower girl comes out and throws the petals just to sort of align out or mark out this sacred pathway for the king to travel. And so we see this act of selfless service on their part. And then we also see praise and adoration. Notice their shouts, Hosanna! to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. That's from Psalm 118.25. And there, if you read it, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. It was a cry of salvation. By Jesus' time, it had become more of a shout of acclamation. Like we might say, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Or praise be. Praises to the son of David. Praises Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praises, praise be in the highest. Praise and adoration. Fourthly, we see an orthodox ascription. They render to Jesus proper affirmations of his personhood. 
We see this title, Son of David, which we studied last week, an affirmation of the Davidic lineage, the, the kingship, messiahship from 2 Samuel 7. Hosanna, they, they, they cry out, Hosanna in the highest. That is, praise to God the Most High, the Lofty One. Praise to the One seated in the heavens. This crowd is shouting in the language of a clearly messianic psalm. And I would encourage you all to read Psalm 118. A clearly messianic psalm. And they are affirming Jesus as the Son of David, the promised Messiah. In other words, we might say this was a psalm-singing crowd praising the Christ and giving glory to Yahweh. Does this sound familiar? The fifth thing we see is stirred wonder. Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. This crowd is praising and glorifying God in such a way that as they make their way into the city, those who were already there are, are turned from their business and they want to know what's happening. They've made such a ruckus as to stir up the people with great wonder and awe at this man, Jesus of Nazareth. So there, uh, there's obedience, selfless service, praise and adoration, orthodox ascription, stirred wonder, we see all of this in their actions. Now, if we wanted to pull out some of their attributes from these actions, what would we see? Well, we would see, again, servitude to Christ. They give Him their cloaks. They cr cover the ground before Him. They're serving Him. Praise to the Christ. They call Him the Son of David, the Messiah. They're glorifying God. They say, Hosanna in the highest. In Luke 19.38, he, he includes this quote, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Doesn't that remind you of what the angels sang at his birth? Servitude to Christ, praise to Christ, glorifying God. They have a knowledge of the promises of God. They, they knew that the son of David was the Messiah. We saw that last week. They were aware of the prophecy of Zechariah, no doubt. That's hard for us to understand. These people knew their scriptures very well. They knew this prophecy. Knowledge of the promises of God. Joy and delight. There's celebration with singing and shouting. They are, make no mistake about it, they are worshiping Jesus. Now how do I know that? Again, Luke 19, 39-40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they're worshiping you. Stop them. Don't let them do this. And he answered, I tell you, if all these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If they don't worship me, the rocks will worship me. All of this over this man, Jesus of Nazareth, servitude, praises, glorifying God. They know the promises of God. They're joying and delighting and worshiping in Christ. Now, that's the end of the exposition. Before we transition into applying what we see here to ourselves, I want to point out two red flags that I think are important to note here. Again, we're going to have to reach and, and understand, reach to the, the context of the gospel as a whole and take some things here from which we can learn about ourselves a great deal. The first red flag is the words of the crowd that day. Matthew 21, 10 and 11 again. 
When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, if he wanted to, to make the best assumption, assume the best, perhaps they're referring to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses had said, From among you and from among your brothers will come a prophet like myself. He will speak the words of God, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But it still appears that when they answer, this is the prophet, there, there's some language It's just not strong enough. They haven't given him enough credit. There's, they haven't given enough information. They haven't ascribed to him as much as they could. In other words, they did not, like Peter, say, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the first one. First red flag. Have they given him enough credit? But the second red flag comes... It was found in the words of the crowd by the end of the week. There is some difference of opinion. We often refer to Palm Sunday. There's some difference of opinion. Some would put his entrance into Jerusalem on Monday, which means he would have entered into his city on the day when all of the Israelites were gathering their lambs for the Passover feast, just four days before the slaughtering and four days before his crucifixion. But by the end of the week... By Friday of this week, whether this is Sunday or Monday, by Friday, listen to what these crowds are saying. Verse, Matthew 27, verses 20 and 22. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. Now, if we take this to heart and, and put this, read this back into what we're watching here in the, the triumphal entry, knowing what these people are capable of within a week's time, I believe here we are reminded of the fickle nature of man and the unchanging nature of Christ. At the beginning of the week, they're headstrong in their worship. By the end of the week, they're just as headstrong about His crucifixion. Now, how many of us know people who are like this? They, they, they become impressively dogmatic on certain issues, seemingly overnight will rearrange their whole lives around this newly held belief or this newly held practice. And then within a few years, they've all but abandoned it entirely. Or how many of you are like that? Perhaps some of us are on the, the beginning part of this trajectory, the first half. In other words, your dogmatism on certain issues, certain doctrines, certain practices is already beginning to cause rifts within fa with family and with friends, more than likely because you've not yet learned how to be gracious in holding those things. But perhaps you're already beginning to collect and trade doctrines and practices like baseball cards. And whoever doesn't have your cards is a heretic, even though they had your cards last week and you had theirs. See, the point is whether you're moving in the right direction toward godliness. You're growing 
or you're heading in the wrong direction toward worldliness or legalism, all of it should remind us, it goes to show us about our fickle human nature. We're just back and forth all of the time and yet at the very same time we can look at the Christ in this passage and see He has not changed. That there is no rock like our God. And so if there is to be any constancy in us, any steadiness, any depth of root, we have to first be aware of our human nature, our tendencies in this matter. And then we have to seek to be firmly planted in Christ who is the unchanging one. And so let's do that very quickly. By way of application first, let's study, think about, just consider the fickle nature of man. We need to recognize that throughout this inspired record of human history in the Bible, natural man is painted in this capricious light by way of historical biography we can look at their lives and say, yeah, they're like that, and we're like them, so we're like that. And also, in the Scripture, we are regularly warned against the constant wavering back and forth to and fro between opinions, beliefs, and practices in the doctrinal sections. Let me, let me show you that. Let's just think about this, and you don't have to turn to all these. Think about the Exodus generation, that first generation that paints this picture of redemption for us. They were complaining before they even left Exodus or left Egypt. They're rescued, they're redeemed from bondage, and they complain. And so God gives them water, and they're happy. And then they complain. And God gives them food, and they're happy. And then they complain. And they want to kill Moses. And so God gives them water again. What does that teach us about people? Except that we are unstable, at best unstable. Or think about the period of the judges. Again, I've been, uh, we're going through judges in family worship, and so this stuff's just fresh on my mind. Listen to these passages from the book of Judges. Judges 3, 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Judges 3, 11 and 12. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died... And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 4.1 And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Judges 6.1 The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. Seven years. Judges 10.6 The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baal. Listen, listen this is very interesting. They served the Baals, and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. As if eight gods was too many. They only wanted to serve the false gods, would not serve the Lord. Judges 13, 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Over and over and over. The Israelites, what do they do? They rebel. God hand, gives them over to the hands of their enemies. They cry out for help. God sends a judge. They receive rest. And then they rebel. And God gives them in the hand of their enemies. They cry out for help. God gives a judge. And they have rest. Over and over this cycle. That's the judges. 
We come to the New Testament. I think I mentioned this crowd from John chapter 6 last week. This same crowd that was no doubt following Jesus at this point. John 6, 24. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Notice that? Seeking Jesus. They got in the boats. They're going after Him. John 6, 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. They gave up. All right, everybody, load back up in the boats. He's, he's, he's preaching hard truths. In Acts chapter 8, we read of a man... It's called Simon the Magician. Verse, verse 13 of that chapter, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And then in verse 21 of that chapter, Peter says to Simon, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And remember, he doesn't say, okay, I'll go pray. He says, will you pray for me? He won't even pray himself. He's a, a magician, and then he's enthralled with the miracles, and then all of a sudden he's, he's back to where he began. So much for historical or biographical sketches. Let's talk about New Testament teaching. How does Paul paint this picture in, in the doctrines that he teaches. Well, think about his letters to the church in Corinth. Now, think about that church. Listen to what he writes to them in, his, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Pay attention. He says, If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now what one do we know was punished by the majority? By the Corinthian church. It was that guy who was sleeping with his stepmom in 1 Corinthians 5. And, and most commentators agree. So here's the picture. Picture this church. This man is found in open, public, disgraceful sin. Paul has to write them a letter to tell them to, to remove him from fellowship because they were arrogant. They were, they were proud. They didn't even notice the sin in their own congregation. Then when he repents and wants to come back, he has to write them again and say, let him back in. It's enough. You're going to burden him with this punishment. You see, they're constant swaying back and forth. It's like... You know, we're proud because of our liberalism, and then we're proud because of our conservatism. You know, it's just back and forth. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For, here's the reason why he's so afraid, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if you received a different spirit from the one you received. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. You put up with it readily enough. They are, like the churches of the Revelation, tolerating this false teaching. 
These people had been converted under Paul's ministry, discipled under Paul's ministry, and now they're very quick to follow after these super apostles, even if they preach a false gospel and a false Christ, just because these, these men were probably more outwardly worthy of a following. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul writes to that church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Another church had received the gospel. Converts had been made. They had been discipled. And then they're, in His words, so quickly running after and being deceived by a false gospel of works. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul writing to that church says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You put the passage together there. He's saying Christ gave to the church these offices of teachers, these men who will teach the Word, so that you will grow up into maturity. Immaturity, childlike immaturity in the faith is being driven and tossed to and fro. Therefore, maturity is, is marked by being firmly rooted and planted and not being easily persuaded. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now again, in all of these areas, why would Paul have to admonish these saints in this regard, unless he himself knew and believed that there is a tendency in all human beings and all of our fallen humanity to fluctuate and vacillate from opinion to opinion and from doctrine to doctrine. Why would he have to write this if we are not so easily caught up in fads? Why would he write this if we're not so quickly captivated, swept off of our feet by someone who's a smooth talker with quick wit and a sense of humor? Human tradition, we would call it. Philosophy, empty deceit. The answer is because it's true. That's why he's writing this stuff, because it's true. There is something in fallen men that makes all of us volatile and unsteady. It makes us all want to know somebody, to follow somebody, to be a part of something new, something fresh, something important. It makes us all want to, at some point or another, belong to a majority and feel accepted. And if you think that you're somehow outside of the pattern painted by a historical biography or that you are above the admonitions of the doctrines given in the Scriptures, you're sorely mistaken. This is how you are. Again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't hold to doctrines. We shouldn't hold firmly to biblical practice. Even if we're headed in the right direction, we're following those who are worthy to be followed in as much as they follow Christ. We adhere to doctrines that are worthy of our full acceptation. We order our lives around things that are in ways that are godly. Even in that, even when we're doing good, 
We need to be aware of how quickly it was we came to that. How quickly we were taught. How quickly it was that we adopted this view or that view. How such a short time ago we were in unbelief or, or had a different belief. All of that, whether we're going the right way or the wrong way, should cause us, it should give us pause to consider just how flighty we are. Look at yourself and see if this is you. You jump from hobby to hobby, interest to interest, topic to topic, club to club. The question is, what if it becomes more extreme? Will you deny Christ by the end of the week? It's Sunday. Well, by Friday, will you be denying Him? Next month, next year, 30 years from now, will you walk away? How do you know? That's the question. How do you know you are not just like these crowds? How do you know that you are not like so many you know who were just like you, who sat in the pews right beside you and yet wandered from the faith? How do you know you're not like a Judas Iscariot or Simon the Magician? How do you know? See, what we're seeing again by these crowds is the same thing we've seen all along from them and from humanity. In the crowds, they have false presuppositions about the Messiah, what He came to do. They're, they're basically worshiping, worshiping Him because they think He's come to serve their, their, their self-serving political pipe dream and conquering Rome and taking over the world. They've been whipped up into an emotional frenzy. But we could never be... We could never go there, right? We're reformed. We'd never be emotion, whipped up in an emotional frenzy. We're informed. These people were not uninformed. They were misinformed, but they were not uninformed. They were using scriptural words just without scriptural doctrines. Or some would put it Bible words without Bible sentences and Bible paragraphs. They're excited about Christ just for unfounded reasons. They're praising Christ and serving Christ, but only because they're ignorant of His true nature. Again, this reminded me of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to see humanity for what it truly is. How do you know that you will not be the one standing before Christ on judgment day saying, Lord... Did we not prophesy in your name? I mean, we studied the art of prophecy by William Perkins. He's a Puritan for crying out loud. How do you know he's not going to look at you and say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Our humanity is undependable, mutable, variable to every little puff of external wind, constantly changing, constantly shifting, constantly moving from next big thing to next big thing. So again, I would ask, how do you know that what's driving you, what's exciting you, what's motivating you, what's causing praise and adoration in your heart, how do you know it's not false? Or I could ask it on a, on a corporate level. As a church, tomorrow we will celebrate six years of our first worship gathering. How do we know that the past six years haven't just been a farce? How do we know... Or how can we be sure that Covenant Bible Church is not just jumping around from shiny object to shiny object, niche doctrine to niche doctrine, attempting to find some, some stability? How can we be sure that this church will exist in 10 years or 100 years as I pray? 
How do we know? How do we know all of this is not just misinformed? Most of us are young by worldly standards. How do we know that we aren't just another group of misinformed youths chasing the tales of popular culture? I'll tell you how. This is how we know. Are you ready? We fix our eyes upon Christ. We calibrate all of our doctrine to revolve around His person and His work. And we center all of our worship around all that He is and all that He has done. And then when we've done that, we stay there. And we don't move. We might go deeper into that, but we don't ever move from that. If we will make sure that the foundation of all of our doctrine and practice is the rock of the ages, He will stand by that lampstand and He will fan that lampstand to flame until He returns or until He's done. But even at that point, if He's done with us, then we would say, praise God, our work is finished. So I guess the question is, are you rooted in the unchanging Christ? Again, when we look at this passage, if we just step back and pay attention to Christ, we see that He remains the same as He's always been. Serene, resolute, fixed, immovable. He's omniscient as He has been for all eternity, foreseeing and foretelling future events because it was through Him and to Him that they were decreed before all worlds. He executes His sovereign authority, dictating every detail of the events that would lead to His death. He shows his zeal for the Word of God as he acts to fulfill it in all of his life to the least jot and tittle. He shows his knowledge of the predetermined purpose of God as he orchestrates every step according to this ancient prophecy. He displays his kingship and the reign, his, his reign of meekness and peace as he rides in on this unbroken foal of a donkey. The author to the Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 would say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. Whether he's walking on foot or riding on a donkey, he is eternally the same unchanging Savior. No matter his reception in any town or village, he is the same Christ whom grace or through whom grace had been given before the ages began. In John 12, 27, I believe if we pay attention not long after this very incident, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. So whether they're welcoming him with palm branches or beating him with whips, he's not changed. His purpose is to redeem sinners. Christ is continual. Christ is persistent. Christ is unceasing. Christ is perpetual. Christ is incessant. Christ is eternal. Christ is endless. Christ is interminable. Christ is relentless. Christ is consistent. Christ is steady. Christ is invariable. Christ is unchanging. Christ is undeviating. Christ is faithful. Christ is devoted. Christ is true. Christ is firm. Christ is unswerving. Christ is steadfast. Christ is dependable. Christ is trustworthy. Christ is resolute. Christ is determined. Christ is tenacious. Christ is dogged. Christ is unwavering. There is no God or there is no rock like our God. 
And so if we would be rooted, we must be rooted in Christ. Not new fads, not movements, not worldly schemes or the followings of men or bandwagons or what we would call flash-in-the-pan causes that are here today and gone tomorrow. But how can we be sure then that we're rooted in Christ? How do we know that's happening? I would say be much with Him, be much with Christ, be much in His Word and be much in prayer. Often in the Word of God, constant in prayer. Be much with Christ and be little with pop culture. Be little with news media. Be be very rarely in the midst of the ebbing and flowing tides of mainstream evangelicalism that really only rises and flows as it chases the tail of of the popular culture, begging the culture to be relevant. Just please let us be relevant. Think about it. If our culture as a whole can go from Planned Parenthood to fidget spinners, to North Korea, to a boxing match, to an eclipse, to a hurricane, in obsession, all in a matter of weeks, and the posture of the church is purely reactionary, following it everywhere it goes, then of course that which is popular in Christian culture is going to be changing, constantly changing as much as the attention span of the culture. That's our problem. We're purely reactionary, purely defensive in everything we do. As Christians, we're so often jumping from topic to topic, preacher to preacher, sermon to sermon, podcast to podcast, conference to conference, statement to statement, chasing the industrial complex of evangelicalism when we would do best just to shut it off for a few months or a few years and just get with Christ. And so when somebody comes and says, what's going on in the world? I have no idea what's going on in the world. I've been with Christ. Get your Bible and get a notepad, a pen, Maybe link arms with a few dead guys to to keep you company and seek the face of Christ. He's the only constant in this ever-changing world and amidst ever-changing people, and that includes every one of us. When I gave this lesson to my family last night for family worship, not quite as long, I said, we're all people. We, We are no account. We're not worthy to be trusted. We will let you down. I said, even if you find the greatest person in the world to trust, that person will die at some point, and that will be gone. Christ is the only constant. So examine yourself and and test yourself. See, See to it that you're not like this crowd who can worship on Sunday and then murder Him on Friday. One of the ways that we do that is by coming to the Lord's table. At the Lord's table every week, we, we, we know that we've been out in the world, and, and as it were, we've been sort of vibrated and rattled and shifted, and we come to the Lord's table and we, and we ratchet ourselves back down to Christ, and we, we cinch those straps a little tighter back down to Christ every Lord's day. We, we buckle ourselves back down to that covenant that He has made with us in His blood that we can't break. It's made in His blood. So let's take a moment. Let's meditate upon the unchanging Christ and His work for us. And then we will come to the Lord's table.